0: Well, it's so good to be with you this morning. Uh, I spent the weekend uh, fishing out in the dirt around a campfire with a bunch of other guys, very insecure about my manliness. Um, So it's good to be back in civilization uh, with all of you. If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter four is where we will be, Matthew chapter four. There's something about being young that causes us to dream. I think it's because we have The entirety of our lives ahead of us in a world of endless possibility Uh, many people grow up dreaming of becoming an astronaut or making you know their favorite nba team or doing something great with their lives i on the other hand had no idea what i was going to do i wasn't good at school i had no physical ability whatsoever and so i was really confused what am i going to do with my life but i did have a dream I had a dream that one day I would finally move out of my small town. Uh, To say that I grew up in a small town is an understatement, a massive understatement. My hometown makes, you know, small towns here look like giant cities. I grew up in a very small town and for better or for worse, it shaped me. And I think one of the things that shaped within me is a desire to get out and see the world. I grew up dreaming of one day moving out of my small town And uh, I can remember being so excited to move out. Um, It was just the end of high school and the months leading up to going to college. I would lay in bed at night, looking at the ceiling, dreaming of what it would be like. The best part was I wasn't just moving to a different country halfway across the world. The best part is I was moving to Florida. Okay, sun 365 days a year, right? We see like five days of sun. In British Columbia, 365 days of sun, and so I was excited, and um, I was excited for more than just the sun and the beach. I was excited to to get out and and see more than the the small surroundings that I grew up in. And uh, so after college, I, I spent four years in Florida. After college, I did a small stint of pastoring in Eastern Canada where I grew up, but then I hit the road again. I drove across Canada and I moved to this strange and foreign land known as surrey british columbia and the rest is history but this is a normal experience isn't it many of us have our own forms of moving out and going to college or moving away from our family and this is normal like people grow up and move away they leave their family and they start their lives this is just the process or the beginning of the process of adulthood now in the modern modern west we celebrate this leaving home is is seen to be a positive thing, like living in your mom's basement is just not usually the positive ideal, and I get that. But in the first century, this wasn't the same way. It wasn't seen in the same lens. See, people didn't see moving home and moving away from your family always as a positive thing. To understand this worldview, let's dive into our passage, which is is Matthew chapter 4. It starts in verse 18 and says this, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Petros or Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake. I did this all weekend and I'm terrible at it uh, for they were fishermen. Jesus said the words of any good rabbi, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in their boats with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. And, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So one day, Jesus is walking down the sandy seashore of the Galilean Sea. And as he does, he runs into four different brothers on two different occasions. And as he, he approaches James and John, they see this, you know, this guy with like blonde flowing hair. Obviously, it's not white Jesus, but this, this Jesus figure, he comes up to them and he starts a conversation with them. And somewhere along the way in that conversation, something happens to convince James and John to abandon their father and the family business. In a split second, in a moment, the, the language that Matthew uses is immediately like 5, 10, 15 minutes. We're not sure how long, but it was, it was short. In a short amount of time, in one interaction with Jesus, James and John decide to leave their father and abandon the family business. They just like meet Jesus dead in his tracks and leave everything behind just like that. Now, in our culture, we don't bat an eye at this. This is normative. This is uh, something that we celebrate. And we're used to this kind of thing. But they left the family business. They abandoned their father. The command in the Old Testament to honor one's mother and father was uh, most specifically aimed at caring for your mother and father in their old age. And to leave their father fending for himself and carrying on the family business means that nobody was there to care for their father. No one was going to carry on the family business. It was left on their shoulders. But they walked away. Craig Keener, a New Testament scholar, um, comments on this passage and says this, such abandonment could easily bring them dishonor in their community. See, these guys would have been seen as traitors, those who abandoned their father and the family business. Joseph Hellerman writes, for Jesus' contemporaries, in the ancient world, the betrayal of family was the greatest relational disaster. See, no one in the first century would have just read this as a story when James and John decide to follow Jesus. They would have read it at the as this but the thing that probably would have struck them most clearly and abruptly would have been the fact that james and john abandoned their father and leave the family business behind this was so far off from the cultural norm of their day their father is just left in the dust left to fend himself and jesus here seems to be okay with this there seems to be something about the call of jesus that compels james and john to leave their family behind we see another picture of this. If you're in Matthew chapter 4, flip over to the right to Matthew chapter 12, just a few chapters beyond. And in chapter 12, verse 46, we see another similar story. It says this, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, he's preaching a sermon, he's teaching the Torah. He, he, he was still talking to the crowd. His mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, hey, Jesus, your mother and brother are standing outside and uh, they want to talk to you. And he replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? I imagine the guy being like, uh, Jesus, I just told you that the people standing outside like wanting to talk to you. What do you mean? Like, who are my brothers and sisters? Now, I've got to say, the, the words here of Jesus come off a bit rude, right? They come off a bit like harsh and, and drastic. And like if I were here, I'd probably pull Jesus aside, be like, Jesus, like you can't be so unchrist-like. Like you can't just like ignore your family. Like this isn't a good look for you. Like I would start a PR campaign and be like, Jesus, like you can't say this stuff in public. Like, I'm like blocking your Twitter account. Like you're like you can't say this kind of stuff. What Jesus says here seems insensitive and rude. Now he's literally ignoring his own family. Who's my mother? And who are my sisters? I kind of relate to this. I remember growing up, and my parents would always do the most embarrassing things. And it's like way worse if they do it in public, right? Like my dad would do the most embarrassing things. Like my dad had these hot rods that he'd be driving around all the time, and he would collect these 1970s mannequins, and he would dress them out in leather Harley Davidson jackets, hats, wigs, the whole deal. And my dad would drive around in this like Ford coupe all the way like through Charlottetown, and It was so embarrassing. Other times my dad would be on like his motorcycle. Uh, It was probably like a Triumph or a Harley and he'd be like driving through town without a shirt on. If I was lucky, my dad would have a leather vest on and I'd be out skateboarding with my friends. My dad would drive by, his chest hair just flapping in the wind and one of my friends would be like, Dan, there's your dad. And I'd be like, who is my father? I don't know that man. That guy is so embarrassing. This is what Jesus is doing. In this moment, he is distancing himself from his family when he says who is my mother and who are my brothers and sisters if you look down at verse 49 it says this pointing to his disciples he said here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother now i need to address the fact that jesus looks to his male disciples and calls them his mother and sisters that is strange But what Jesus is getting at is that his disciples are not just students of a rabbi. Rather, his disciples, according to Jesus, have become a family to him. Jesus here is not just simply commenting uh, in such a way where he's distancing himself from his family. Jesus here is redefining drastically what family is. See, Jesus is calling his followers to form an alternative family. He is calling us to become brothers and sisters. The word translated in your in your Bible as brothers and sisters is the Greek word adelphoi. It shows up in the New Testament 342 times. That's a lot. Joseph Hellerman commenting on this says no image for the church occurs more often in the New Testament than the metaphor of family. So you can see this in the fact that Jesus would, and this wasn't normative, Jesus calls God his father. He uses family language to refer to the, the, the other member of the Godhead. to see, the, the most common image of those who follow Jesus in the New Testament is that of family. Now, if you're in Matthew chapter 12, you can just go back a few chapters to Matthew chapter 8. I'm going to make this point really clear. Matthew chapter 8. It says in Matthew 8, verse 19, Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, so this is a Bible teacher, a preacher, comes to him and said, Teacher or rabbi, I will follow you wherever you go. Okay, hey, that sounds like a good deal. I'm like, this guy wants to follow Jesus. Like, this is, this is great. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens. Okay, birds have nests. Good point. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Others, other, another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead like here's a man who wants to follow jesus like like deep down is like like jesus i will follow you wherever you go i want to follow you and jesus says you can't be my disciple he turns him away why does he do this this seems so strange like jesus seems to think that this man isn't ready to follow him because for in some way he's not ready to abandon his own family see he wants to go back and, and bury his father this is a noble thing, a good thing. He wants to be at his father's funeral, and yet Jesus turns him away. Now, this probably doesn't refer to the fact that his father has recently passed away and he wants to be at the funeral. Most likely what Jesus is referring to is, again, the, the call of the, the Hebrew scriptures, where uh, it was the, the responsibility of the children to care for the parents in their old age. And what this guy is probably saying to Jesus is, Jesus, I want to care for my parents until they pass away. And Jesus is saying, you're not ready. You're not ready to be my, my disciple because what Jesus knows is if this man abandons his parents in their old age, this guy is going to lose out on his inheritance. He's going to be cut off from his own people. And Jesus is saying, do you really know what it's going to cost you to follow me? Are you truly ready to walk away from everything, even your inheritance? Because that's probably what it's going to cost you. See, Jesus' words here are shocking. His invitation to us is to join an alternative family, a different family. It's about loyalty to a different group of people, a group of people that goes deeper than physical flesh and blood, the brothers and sisters of God. And, and I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. This is offensive to us today. This is one of Jesus' most provocative and difficult teachings found in the New Testament, to, to show loyalty to your spiritual brothers and sisters over to your flesh and blood family. And we're offended at the idea that Jesus would call us to have this kind of loyalty to our spiritual brothers and sisters. But this wouldn't just be offensive to, those, uh, to us, but this would be offensive to Jesus' original audience, probably more offensive. See, we need to understand how this original audience would have heard the words of Jesus in their own culture. For instance, in today's world, the most intimate form of relationship that we can probably think about is marriage. There is no form of intimacy deeper and more celebrated than marriage in our culture. In fact, it would be outrageous or crazy for somebody to uh, put another relationship before their spouse. In our culture, we would call this adultery, unfaithfulness, or even betrayal. See, there is no greater form of relational intimacy, no bond deeper, and no relationship held a higher level in today's society than marriage. It is the highest level of relationship when it comes to loyalty in our culture. However... The people who are listening to Jesus say this, this wasn't the culture they lived in. See, in in the first century, marriages weren't usually the top priority relationship that you had. The most loyal relationship that you had was probably your brothers and sisters. So in that day, in the first century, you got married not because you fell in love, Not because you dated somebody and and you like drove out and had dinner with them and you had common interests and you developed like a spark and there was like romantic chemistry. This wasn't the world they lived in. You got married to somebody because you were 13 years old and your parents picked somebody for you and there was an arranged marriage. Sounds romantic, I know, right? Like this was the world that they lived in. And the highest priority in this culture was to continue your bloodline through the male. And so a male's most an intimate and loyal relationship was to his bloodline. And my point is not that this is the way that it ought to be, or this is the way that God designed it to be. My point is simply as this is the culture in which Jesus is communicating to us to become brothers and sisters. Jesus is using the most loyal form of relationship in his day to talk about and describe the kind of relationship that we should have as followers of Jesus. To visually see this point, take a look at how our culture prioritizes relationship. So this is an individualist um, group. So if, I don't know if this is news to you, but we live in an individualistic society. It's been like that for the last 200 and so years. So in our society, you've probably heard a sermon on this. You put God for, at the top, of, you put all your big rocks in and you prioritize God, right? And then second is marriage, your spouse. Third is your family. And then fourth, you love your neighbor as yourself and so on. In, in the culture that Jesus speaks into in first century uh, Galilee, this is how they would have prioritized relationships. So this is a strong group society. And so in this society, you would prioritize the gods. So if you were Roman, you, your number one allegiance was to Caesar. Your number one allegiance was to the imperial cult of Rome. If you were maybe a Canaanite, your allegiance was to Baal. If you were uh, a Hebrew, your number one allegiance was to Yahweh. And then number two, it was your household. This is your brother and sister, your family name, your your lineage. And then number four, three was your marriage, your spouse. And then Number four is others. Uh, This would be loving your neighbors yourself and so on. But when Jesus comes, he speaks into this culture and he flips the priorities. In Jesus' view, our number one loyal relationship is to God and his people. This is why when Jesus is asked, what is the number one command? He he doesn't say love God. He says, actually, it's two things. The number one command is to love God and your neighbor. See, to, to love God is to love God's people so that what jesus is saying here is your loyalty is to god and his people then it is your family and then it is others and this is so drastically different to how we prioritize things in a western hyper individualistic society so to become a christian was to denounce your family's religion it was to announce uh, tribute to rome or tribute to baal and and to become a follower of jesus and if you can imagine what that would cost you, if you were somebody who grew up in Rome or grew up worshiping the gods of Canaan and you started to follow Jesus, your family members would begin to beg and plead with you to denounce Jesus because they pleaded with you because if, if you didn't, they knew that you would face the consequences and they probably would become persecuted with you. So to many, converting to Christianity meant that you had to denounce not only your family's religion, but you had to separate yourself from your family. In fact, families would often even host ceremonies that look like modern day funerals, where they would pronounce you cut off from your people or even dead to them. Therefore, people who uh, converted to Christianity had to become brothers and sisters because they had no other option. But today we, we, we take this as a metaphor, something that's symbolic, but in that culture, these are people that they had no family if they decided to follow jesus they had no people who would call them their own nowhere they would belong nowhere that somebody would love them and this is the culture and climate in which jesus says here are my mother and my brothers and my sisters for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother this is also the climate in which jesus says if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother wife and children brother and sisters yes even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. That is such an unencouraging verse. Like, what do we do with that, right? See, Jesus' words are, are not just insensitive here or come off offensive. They are drastically opposed to first century family values. And this is one of Jesus' again, most provocative offensive teachings in the New Testament. And this not only goes against first century family values, this goes against western family values like we love family-friendly jesus we love like our radio stations that say jesus safe for the whole family like we, we love this we love white jesus safe jesus like pro-family jesus and jesus was and is pro-family but his values go drastically uh, in the opposite direction that our often western family values go in fact one of the places that jesus gets so out of line with our western family values is when he says in matthew 10 do not suppose that i've come to bring peace to the earth. And I'm like, Jesus, you're supposed to bring peace to the earth. You're the prince of peace. What are you doing? He said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Okay, I get that one. "A A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Imagine what he's saying is your brothers and sisters are going to be those that you're supposed to be against the person on the other side of the political divide, the person that you hate, the person that you're against. Jesus is here and saying in verse 36 that they are going to become part of your household, your family. Verse 37, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So what in the world is Jesus saying? Has he lost his mind, right? What is he saying here, right? Like this sounds crazy. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. What? Like, I've come to turn father against his son. Jesus, have you read the Old Testament? Honor your father and mother. What are you doing and what are you saying? Like, this is the most un-Jesus stuff that I have ever heard. Jesus is not here calling us to hate our families. In fact, Jesus is not calling us to hate anyone. Jesus here is calling us to rethink our relational commitments. He's he's calling us to reprioritize our relational ties. According to Jesus, we are called to become family. And some of you in this room, this is not offensive to you at all. This is your story. You grew up feeling abandoned from your family. You grew up without a good father, without a good mother. You grew up in the system. Maybe you, you went through adoption process after adoption process with no hope. Maybe you grew up all your life and you just never felt like you fit in. There was nowhere you could belong. you could belong. Maybe you became a Christian like my dad, and when my dad became a Christian, he was rejected by his family. Maybe that's your story. Maybe there's now tension with your family because of the way that you prioritize your life by following Jesus. Some of us in this room need this to be true. Because like the first century disciples, when you decided to follow Jesus, you had nowhere to belong. You had no one to love you. And you need this to be true because you need to know that there's a family that cares for you. There's somebody where, you, that, where you're, you're actually loved and cared for. And some of us are wondering, is this actually true? Is any of this even possible? That we could actually become brothers and sisters and this could become a family. Joseph Hellman writes in his book, When the Church Was a Family. And he says this, Jesus radically challenged his disciples to disavow primary loyalty to their natural families. In order to join the new surrogate family of siblings, he was establishing the family of God. Jesus expected us, his followers, to follow him as family. You know, exchanging one's family was actually at the heart of what it meant to become a disciple of Jesus so that we, like Jesus, could say, God, our Father, or Abba, Father, See, when Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple, the word he uses for hate actually means to abandon. Some have wrongly suggested that this word actually means to love less than. It's actually a grammatical impossibility for it to mean that. Uh A. Jacobson, uh, N.T. Wright, and many others point out, this is in the words of N.T. Wright, the only explanation for Jesus' astonishing command is that he envisioned loyalty to himself and his kingdom movement as creating an alternative family. In other words, Jesus calls us to transfer primary loyalty from our flesh and blood to our spiritual brothers and sisters, and he calls us to become the family of God. And this is what the early church did. This is what the first followers of Jesus did became they became family they devoted themselves to eating together uh, working together studying the word of god together praying together and sacrificially loving one another because this is what families do see the early church wasn't a weekend event you attended it was a family you belonged to this wasn't optional for them community wasn't an optional add-on to following jesus it was at the core of what it meant to be a disciple to be a brother and sister in christ it was their top priority they devoted themselves to one another because they truly believed that they were family at the deepest level. Wesley Hill writes that Jesus, quote, takes the basic notion of family and cracks it open, stretches its contents beyond their agreed upon limits and wraps the results around a much wider range of people than socially acceptable. Jesus is creating a new family and he's calling us to be a part of it. And the early church lived this out. They lived out Following Jesus as family. They lived this way out of necessity because they had to leave their families behind. Many of them were pushed out and ostracized and even persecuted by their own family. So they took Jesus' teaching on family literally. And as they did, they became a radical demonstration of the love of God to the world around them. They were known for their love for one another and the world. They were known for caring for one another's needs, caring for the poor doing justice, eating together, and following Jesus together as family. And because of their belief that they were brothers and sisters, they were the first to create public healthcare systems, hospitals. They were the first to create public uh, uh, welfare systems that were available to all. They cared for the poor. They took in the unwanted children of their society. They loved radically because this is what it meant to become part of God's family. See, the early church met in homes around a table where they shared meals and their lives together. They cared for one another and they followed Jesus together because they believed they were family. This is why the New Testament uses the, the term brothers and sisters 342 times. Because the crazy thing is the early church lived like that reality was true. It wasn't a metaphor. It wasn't something they took as, as poetic symbolism. This was the reality of what it meant to become a follower of of Jesus but there was a radical and, and, and um, uh, there was a radical shift in the fourth century. The church went from being illegal and persecuted from becoming because of Constantine the state religion of Rome. So Constantine came in took over killed a bunch of people took over Rome and instituted Christianity in 313 as the official state religion. When he did many people were forced to become Christian and because of that the church went from a family to become a business. They took out church around the table. They stopped practicing the Lord's table as an actual full feast. And what they did is they moved aside the table. They put a podium in the center and they filled these rooms with hundreds of people. And what happened was what slowly began to fade was that the center of Christianity was a, was a family of brothers and sisters, and the church no longer was a family. Today, we use words like family and community to describe our most shallow and loose relationships. Today, 38% of Christians say their preferred form of discipleship is, quote, on my own. We don't think we need one another. We don't think we need the words of Jesus to be true, that we actually are family, that we're brothers and sisters. And today, we've lost this idea since the fourth century that we are the family of God. Now, to make this point a little bit deeper, the sociologist Edward Hall in the 1960s developed a a theory of multi-layer relationships. And these are, I'll, I'll share them with you. The first layer of relationship is public relationships. Most people have the capacity for about 70s of these in their, their life. And these are people that you regularly see at the gym, the coffee shop. This is your barista, the, the cashier who che- checks you out at, at Safeway or whatever. Uh, these are people that you probably don't know their name. You probably don't know actually anything about them, but you probably just interact with them on a regular basis. You're the other the person that you probably go up to the bench press. And you're like, hey, are you, how many more sets do you have? The person that you like go up and like check out your groceries. You don't know anything about them, but you interact with them on a regular basis. These are people that you pass by without ever knowing. The second level relationship are acquaintances. These are um, relationships that you probably have the capacity for 50 of these in your life. These are people in your social circles. Think about people like uh, the person who lives across the street from you. Uh, Maybe it's um, people at church or it's people at the office. These are people that you kind of know, maybe you've hung out with a couple times, but you probably don't have over for dinner on a regular basis. And you're probably not going to invite them to your birthday party. These are your acquaintances. But next, there are friends. And most people have the the relational capacity for five to 12 uh, true friendships in their life. These are people who actually know you and spend time with you. These are relationships that are built on common interest and and a mutual bond. These are people that you would invite to your birthday party that would make maybe your, your guest list at your wedding and so on. These are people that you would have over regularly for dinner because they are your friends. The fourth level of relationship is community. And this goes much further than any of the other relationships so far. These are people who share a level of intentionality with you. It goes beyond friendship. And um, these are people who know your temptations. They know your character flaws, your deep hurts, and your best character uh, characteristics and traits. These are people who know who God has called you to be, and they push you toward that end. These are people that you follow Jesus with intentionally. And then there's the inner circle. This is the fifth and final stage. These are the closest people in your life. You probably have a relationship Capacity for three people. Think about your spouse, the two maybe closest friends in your life, the people that you're completely open and transparent and raw with. These are the five levels of relationship. Now, the goal is not that we move everyone down from the top layer all the way down into the core of a relational intimacy. This would be actually unrealistic and impossible to take, you know, 150 people and try to be best friends with them. The goal rather is to have healthy relationships at every level of intimacy. But the danger and what I want to, the point I'm trying to make is that we often confuse proximity with intimacy. We think that because we're in close proximity with others, maybe acquaintances, that we have intimacy with them. We think that we actually know them and are known by them. For instance, one of the loneliest demographics in our society is 40-year-old married men. One of the loneliest demographics in the West. See, this is a demographic with acquaintances they work with family that they interact with, but very few friends that know them. Uh, This is often the result of a disproportionate emphasis on vocational success and family dynamics at the expense of their emotional, social and spiritual well-being. Another example is is Boomer parents. Boomer parents are more likely to be closer to their adult children than to people their own age. In other words, Boomer parents are often those who have very, very few friends, uh, inner circle and community. See, our problem is that we don't have, it's not that we don't have people in our lives. The problem is that we don't have friends, community, and an inner circle. See, most people have relationships at the first two levels, but fail to have relationships at the last three and foundational levels of relationship. See, many of us have acquaintances, few of us have friends, but very, very few of us have what the Bible describes as community. In addition to this, most people confuse friendship, with community, We think to ourselves, hey, I, I've got friends and some of them even know Jesus, like kind of know Jesus. But, but we like, we talk about Jesus sometimes, they're Christian, like they're following Jesus. So I have community, I am good. See, there is a large difference between friendship and community. Friendship is often formed over common interest and companionship and requires very little, if any, uh, intentionality or inconsistency. But on the other side, community requires a great deal of consistency and intentionality. To be in community requires that we bear one another's burdens, forgive one another's sins, confess our sins. We love one another, serve one another, forgive one another. In fact, the New Testament gives us 59 commands with the words one another attached. In other words, we can't complete, follow, or obey 59 of the New Testament commands without being in community. There is a deep cry in our society for people to live this kind of life. Deep community, friendship, and an in inner circle. David Brooks, who writes for the New York Times, writes this. Culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest rest of us follow them. See, people are desperate for a better way. With all of the relational breakdown, the the cultural polarization that we're experiencing, the rise of individualism, mental health crisis that we find ourselves in, loneliness, anxiety, and on and on, these are all deep cries and aches from within our society longing for a better way to live. Longing for community, longing for what Jesus calls the family of God. So what if we followed Jesus together as family? What if we did simple things like eating together? This is like a radical thing in our time. If you don't believe me, let me convince you. Um, It is no secret that the dining table is disappearing in our culture and society. In fact, fewer dining tables are being sold as well as uh, um, dishes and, and table sets and all this We're selling less and less in wealthy centers of the modern West. And the table is now less and less becoming the center of family life. You're more likely to eat dinner at your computer screen at work or in the car than as a family around a table. Uh, In the United States, about 70% of meals are eaten outside of the home. 20% of them are eaten in your car. Um, And less than half of American families eat dinner together on a regular basis. See, according to researchers, uh, frequent family dinners can be seen to prevent eating disorders, alcohol and substance abuse, violence, depression, and suicidal thoughts. If you even go on the B.C. government website, it will tell you all of the benefits of eating together as a family. In fact, a survey from 2022 by the American uh, Health Association found that 91% uh, of people were significantly less stressed when their families ate meals together on a regular basis. Louise Fresco, in her book, uh, Hamburgers in Paradise, she writes, the human is the only animal species that surrounds its food with rituals. Obviously, she's she's not coming from a Christian worldview. But we're the only animal species that surrounds its food with rituals. She goes on to say the table makes us human. The table is part of a sacred ritual. At the table, we sit across from each other face to face. And we pass dishes and serve one another. With our mouths, we both um, converse and consume. It is a dance of intimacy and delight. At the table, we toast and we celebrate. We pray and we become grateful. We taste and see that God is good. It is no wonder then that Jesus centers the last moment before his death around a table. When Jesus wanted to make sense of his death, he didn't give us a metaphor. He gave us a meal. See, at the table, we experience the love of God. This is why the early Christians called the Lord's table a love feast or agape feast. We experience what it means to be family, what, what it means to, to become the brothers and sisters of Jesus. What if we did simple things like ate meals together? Or what if we followed Jesus together? I know this is like a revolutionary idea. What if followers of Jesus followed Jesus together, right? Joseph Hellerman writes this at the beginning of his book. Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who do not stay do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together, or we do not grow much at all. So what if we did things like we follow Jesus together in community? Uh, this week, actually on, on Friday, I got a call, or Thursday, I got a, I got a text, rather, from, from somebody out of the blue. It's somebody I hadn't spoke to in years. And uh, it was somebody that was part of my community years ago. And they just sent me a text that said, hey, Dan, I'm sharing my story this Sunday. And honestly, like it wasn't like a casual text. I was actually quite shocked. What you need to know about this person is when I first met them, they were in a very bad place. They were angry with the world, with, with God and with pretty much everything. They, they couldn't hold a job and they were addicted to alcohol. And I remember picking them up um, from, from a bar in South Surrey at a late night, and I was just encouraging them in my car, driving them to their house and telling them, don't give up, keep following Jesus. And at times they struggled with doubt, wondering if God was even real and why he just doesn't seem to answer prayer. Um, they, they, we had special moments with them, moments of, of, of breakthrough and, and just delight, but then there was moments that were really hard, moments where, where he was angry and frustrated, moments of, of doubt and betrayal, and, and at his worst, I remember picking him up, just, he was totally wasted. I picked him up from this bar. And I could tell this is, wasn't just a guy who was struggling with alcohol. This was a guy totally hurt. See, this is a guy who grew up with a picture-perfect family. His family grew, grew up going to church every single week. Everything seemed perfect until it wasn't. His family went through a really nasty divorce, and, and his parents were separated. And he was left as a young child wondering what went wrong and wondering where in the world was God. And all his life, he held this pain with him and, and he used alcohol as the only way that he could find to make sense of the world, to act as if everything will be okay. So when he came to our group, he felt like he finally had a family. He felt like there was, there was actually somebody that he could belong to, somebody that he could count on, somebody that he could actually know that loved them and they would be there for him at his deepest and darkest moments. And him texting me this week and saying, hey, Dan, I'm sharing my story was just one testament to the reality of the power of family. See, what if we actually follow Jesus like this? What if we actually follow Jesus as brothers and sisters and we're actually committed to one another? What if we shared meals and followed Jesus together and we're there when we really, really need it? See, my question is, is simply this, not metaphorically, not spiritually, not, you know, in any other way, but actually literally, have you devoted yourself to the family of God. Have you responded to Jesus' invitation of following him as family? So here's maybe a, a couple steps that you could at, um, take. Maybe your first step is to come to membership class on the 22nd. And you can sign up with the QR code on the back of the screen. See, maybe you're here and you're not sure what you believe or even if you believe. And you just want to find out more. Maybe you've been here for a while and you're saying, actually, I want to become a member here. I actually want to call this my church family and, and, and devote myself to the people here. Well, maybe your first step is just to come to Welcome to PKC and check it out. Maybe your first step is not that. Maybe it's just to get involved, to start serving. Maybe be on a team and get to know some people here. You can sign up for a serve team on the screen behind me through the QR code. But maybe you just need to get plugged in. Maybe get to know some of you know, the guys who help with production. Or maybe you need to like, you know, make the coffee or greed and get to know some of the people of the church. And maybe that's your first step of, as following Jesus as family. You don't need to go from zero to 100. What if you just made one small step? Maybe you're ready for an altogether different step. You're tired of following Jesus on your your own. It just isn't working, and you know that there's a better way. Maybe your first step is to join a community. On Thursday, we finished Community Basics, and we had 52 people who are now meeting around a table in homes throughout the city of Langley and Surrey, and they're following Jesus together. Maybe you want to be a part of that. We're going to be doing basics again in a few months, and you can sign up again with the QR code behind me. But I don't know what your first step is. But the one thing that I do know is Jesus wasn't speaking metaphorically or spiritually. He was speaking literally when he said, come and follow me as family. So what if we did that this morning? Let's all stand to our feet as we respond.